0: We're coming to a close of a, of a series, and then next week we're going to start a brand new series. The series we've been in all summer long, ever since late May, has been this awesome letter that Paul the Apostle wrote to a church in southern Greece called the Corinthians, and uh, we're going to be in chapter 15. I hope you read ahead and you'll see what a great chapter it is talking about the resurrection talking about the reason that we can have hope at all. You know, it's one thing to talk about Jesus dying for our sins, Him being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But really, the Christian faith wouldn't have gotten off the ground at all, even if Jesus had died for us, if Jesus did not also raise again. And we're going to talk about that topic this very morning. Last week, we were in 1 Corinthians 14, course uh, is a great chapter about spiritual gifts and Paul concludes that chapter and he says be eager be eager in other words be enthusiastic to practice to use the spiritual gift that God gave you but use your gift in a way that helps to build up and to strengthen the church the gift that God gave you isn't just for yourself it's to build up and strengthen other people So use your gift in the right way and let your public gatherings be orderly. Let everything be done in a proper and a fitting way. So we're going to try to practice that now. So 1 Corinthians 15, I hope you, uh, if you have that in your own Bibles, if you brought that or in your Bibles that are in front of you, or you'll see some of the scriptures that are up on the screen this morning. Let's go ahead and pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to see Jesus continue to be lifted up, and Lord, I pray that as we study this chapter on the resurrection, on this idea that somehow, Lord, you were in the grave for, from Friday night all the way to Sunday morning, and on the third day, you came out alive, the stone was rolled away, everyone was astounded who saw you, surprised and shocked and overjoyed, and what that resurrection means not just for the early followers of Christ, but for us even today, the hope that we can have of life beyond the grave. Lord, we pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to what your Spirit has to teach us this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was just reading uh, online this week, and it was saying uh, a statistic, which I thought was shocking when I first read it, and then I thought about it a little, and I said, you know, it's probably true. This uh, uh, article was talking about spiritual doubt, doubt that even followers of Jesus have at some period of their lives. And, there were, and the article was saying that two out of every three followers of Christ have some episode, some chapter in their life where they experience a pretty serious episode of doubt, where they start to wonder, hey, is, is everything that I believe about Jesus, about the church, about faith, about the Bible really being the Word of God, is it all really true? I mean, what if this Christian stuff isn't true? What if it's just pie in the sky? What if it's just our own wishful thinking to try to give us some kind of hope? That after we die and our body is laid in the tomb or we're cremated, that, that there's something that goes beyond death. What if it's just, you know, something that we hope for is true but may not be true at all? That kind of doubt can creep in. In fact, that's going to be one of the serious topics that we're going to deal with in our coming series. You've probably seen the sign out front or near the street. Uh, Out here on the backside of our church property, but our series is going to be called Dear God and it's going to be geared especially toward people who who have questions about the Christian faith, who are exploring the Christian faith, who are not sure or convinced that all this Christian stuff is true. And the very first question that we're going to deal with next week on Dear God is, how can I even be sure, God, that you're there and that you hear me when I pray? How, how do I even know that you hear me when I pray? That's a good question for doubters. You know, you and I have to be convinced, in fact, to be here every Sunday, to get up and to make this uh, church service, this gathering today even worth your while. You and I need to be convinced that these church meetings matter, that your faith in God matters, that your hope in the future matters. Matters that your belief in a God who's personal and who actually cares about us and loves us, that it matters, that there really is life after death, and that doing your best to live a life that honors God for the rest of your life until you breathe your last, that that really matters. We need to be convinced that that really matters. And so today in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul talks about questions like that, And I think Paul answers three big questions in this chapter. The first one is, what is the gospel? What is the good news message? How do you summarize it? If somebody said, what is the Christian faith all about? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What do you guys believe? How could, you know, they always talk about an elevator presentation. Have you guys heard that in marketing or presentations where they say, okay, if you get in an, uh, on an elevator with somebody and you're going from one floor to the next, how do you make the pitch of what you're trying to sell them or what you're trying to get them to believe? How do you make that from the time you get into the elevator until ding, the door opens and they get out of the elevator? You have about 30 or 45 seconds to summarize what it is that you believe. What would you say? Paul has an answer for that. What is the gospel in the first 11 verses? And then the the middle part of the chapter, Paul talks about trying to answer this question of why is it true? Why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ true? Why does Paul believe that it is not just a matter of blind faith, but that the resurrection of Christ is an actual historical event that happened at a moment in history? 2,000 years ago in Palestine. And then the third question, which I think is one of the best questions of all, especially since this happened to be the week that we got the news. Uh, We got a phone call from Jinmon Hinshaw. Many of you know her. Um, She is a dear sister, and she'd been battling cancer for the last few years. We got a phone call on Thursday of this week from her brother David down in a hospital in San Francisco that said, uh, Pastor Jim, I'm sorry to call you, but I need to let you know that my sister Jinmon just passed away, and he wanted us to come down and pray with him at the hospital, and so we did. Uh, when we got to the hospital and you're looking at this uh, the the shell of what used to be a vibrant, a Christian woman with a great sense of humor. We used to love to visit and talk with Jinmon because she was so positive and so full of joy. And we see this body that had been racked by cancer and she'd lost weight and she was so uh, just sunken cheeks and everything else and there was nothing left but a body. And I, and I thought about this week and I thought about what I'd be talking to you about and I said, you know, if if this resurrection of Jesus Christ, if it isn't true then there's no hope for Jinmon. When when she just passed away, there's no hope that somehow her spirit, her soul, and eventually that body that is now dead is going to be resurrected into a spiritual resurrected body that can never die and never get sick again. There wouldn't be any hope at all if Jesus himself did not be be raised from the dead. And so we need to talk about these three questions this morning. What do we have to look forward to? Is there a better world coming? And Paul says, you're darn right there is. I don't know if that's in the Greek, but that's my paraphrase. So the first question, what is the gospel, the good news message? Let's go to the first few verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news that I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you, If you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. And Paul's going to, Paul alludes to it right now. He's going to talk about it later. What if the resurrection never happened? What would be the consequences if Jesus remained in the tomb and he never came out of it alive on the third day? Some terrible consequences would be, uh, would happen if that were not, if the resurrection was not true. Let's go on to the next verses. Because now he's going to say, what is the gospel? If so, if this is the elevator. This is Paul's elevator pitch to the world when he talks about what is the gospel. What is the good news message about Christ? By the way, gospel means good news. So I passed on to you what was most important and what has also been passed on to me. You know, even that language right there, Paul was a a Jewish rabbi before he became a follower of Christ, and Paul, as a rabbi, they had these rabbinic traditions, and and one of the most sacred, formal ways that you could say that the faith of, of one generation was being passed on to the next generation is the rabbis would say, I passed on to you what had been passed on to me from our fathers. And he says this, Christ died for our sins as just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day just as the scripture said. Notice Paul says twice, just as the scripture said. So here's what Paul would summarize the gospel message. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day. And that is, Historical reality actually means something and applies something very significant to us in our lives. First of all, Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures say. Where do you read that? When Paul's talking about the scriptures, he's talking about what we know as the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, from Genesis all the way to Malachi. Where do we see in there that Messiah had actually died and gave his life for us? You read about it in Isaiah chapter 53. I reference that if you wanna read that later in your own time. But in verse five, it's talking about Messiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah says, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our sins, he was whipped and we were healed. He was whipped and yet we were healed. So Christ died for our sins just as the scripture says. And then he says he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day just as the scripture said. You know, when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and gave his great message to a crowd of people that had gathered around him, one of the scriptures that Peter quoted from was Psalm chapter 16 and verse 10. And it says this: It says, "You will not leave my soul among the dead. You will not allow your holy one to see decay." And that's exactly what happened. God didn't allow his holy One to see decay because Christ came out of that tomb alive. And now, not just what the gospel message is, but how do you you authenticate the gospel message? How do you know it's true or not? We go on to verses um, 5 and 6, and we talk about eyewitness testimony. Here's what Paul says, that Jesus came out of the tomb alive on the third day. He was raised on the third day, just as the scripture said. And he says he was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And then he was seen by James, that would be the half-brother of Jesus himself, who was a skeptic until after the resurrection, and Jesus appeared to him personally, and then later... Jesus was seen alive by all the apostles. You can see some of the resurrection appearances in the last chapter of each of the four gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can see some of the resurrection appearances of Christ before he ascended into heaven in the book of Acts chapter 1. So you can read about those for yourself. He was seen by all these people, by eyewitness testimony. And then Paul says, oh yeah, and then there's me because I'm an apostle too, and one of the marks. Or the evidence is the proof that somebody is a true apostle of Christ is somebody has actually seen Jesus Christ alive, risen from the dead. And Paul says this, Yes, and last of all, as though I'd been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. I often think of Paul when he wrote this, he was picturing himself and he said, how am I I even worthy to be called an apostle? Well, I have seen Jesus Christ risen from the dead because as I was on my way to Damascus to persecute the church, to arrest Christ followers and throw them into prison for this faith, this upstart sect of the Jewish religion that was trying to make Jesus to be the Messiah when, when everybody knows that he really wasn't the true Messiah, Uh, Paul was on his way to Damascus to arrest these Christians, and Jesus appeared to him alive on that road to Damascus. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so Paul, who changed his name to Paul after he became a Christ follower, Saul Saul the terrible became Paul the apostle. And he says, last of all, I've seen him myself, risen from the dead. By the way, this account here in 1 Corinthians, written around 55 AD, some 25 years after the resurrection, this account is one of the earliest accounts in all the New Testament uh, for the evidence we have that is actually a list of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. You can... Uh, you should know that even the four gospels, even Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which talk about the life and ministry of Jesus, including his death on the cross and his burial and his resurrection, those four gospels weren't even written yet. So here's one of the earliest testimonies we have uh, of the resurrection of Christ and how he was seen by eyewitnesses. So what is the gospel message, right? Christ died for our sins. He was buried he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said, and he was seen by all of these eyewitnesses, including the Apostle Paul. Now, number two, the, the, the next question is, why is it true? So what is the gospel is the first question. The second question, why is it true? Why can you and I believe this and have confidence, not just some blind faith, not just, well, I hope there's something after the grave after we die, and Jesus, you know, claims that he knows something about that, so I'm going to believe in him, and I don't really know if it's true or not, but I'm just going to believe because it's better to believe than not to believe, and maybe I'll just hedge my bets. Maybe I'll just, you know, hopefully get some fire insurance out of this, and maybe it'll help me uh, have a little hope in this life knowing that death is coming for every one of us. How can we have more than just that kind of blind faith? Why can we know it's true? Well, Paul starts off, before I answer that question, why is this good news message about Christ true? Meaning that it really happened in history, meaning that this event really does correspond with reality. Let's flip that question over. Why is it true? Let's flip it over because Paul starts with the flip side of that question. Uh, What if... It's not true. What if Jesus really didn't come out of that tomb? What if there is no resurrection? Paul starts that in verse 12. And Paul says these words, For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. Paul's addressing a question that had been uh, filtering and floating around the Corinthian church. Somebody in the church started this idea that, you know what? There, there's no such thing as a resurrection of the dead. Do you know there there was a prominent group of Jews in that first century called the Sadducees? They were the guys that were running the temple and the priests and the sacrifices. They were the group of Jews that were, quote, in cahoots with the Romans. In other words, if you give us power over the temple and the Jewish high council and the sacrifices and the priests and all that, Romans, if you give us that, then we'll make sure that the Jewish nation stays at peace and we keep paying our taxes to Rome. This was the group, and by the way, this was the group that says there is no such thing as life after death. There is no such thing as a resurrection. And I imagine some of this Sadducee type teaching from the Jewish faith crept into the Corinthian church. And somebody started saying, I don't know why you guys are talking about the resurrection. There's no such thing as a resurrection. So Paul addresses this. He says there's no resurrection, then Christ hasn't been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. That would be the time where Paul would do a mic drop and he would just go home. If none of this is true, we don't need to be gathering here anymore. Just go join the Kiwanis Club. Go join the Rotary Club or something out there and go join that if to, to meet your social needs because this whole Christian thing would be a sham if Christ has not been raised. And he goes on. He even says there's more that's true. If the resurrection of Christ did not really happen, what else is a consequence of that. He says in verse 15, he says, And we apostles would all be lying about God. For we have said, in other words, our Christian faith is based on the eyewitness testimony of these apostles. And he says, if there's no resurrection of the dead and Christ hasn't been raised, that makes us all liars. For we have all said that God raised Christ from the grave, but that can't be true if there's no resurrection from the dead. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. He just keeps saying the same thing in different ways. And then he goes on. And if Christ has not been raised, in verse 17, your faith is useless, you're still guilty of your sins. That's a terrible thought. Say our sins are not even forgiven because Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. Your parents, grandparents, your ancestors who had faith in Christ, they're lost You think they're in heaven with with Jesus, but he's not in heaven because he never came out of the tomb if there's no resurrection. So they're all lost. They're hopeless. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone. Paul would really be able to say that because he says he's facing death every single day of his life, proclaiming the good news about Christ and his resurrection of the dead. And Paul's being persecuted terribly in the city of Ephesus. And he says, hey, if, if the Christian faith is only good for this life, I, you know, I'm the biggest idiot of them all because I'm risking my life every day for this message saying that I've seen Jesus risen from the dead. So there's all kinds of consequences if the resurrection never really happened, if, um, if the, the question, what if it's not true, comes out to be, oh, guess what, it's not true. So Paul flips it now and he says, okay, enough Talking about what if it's not true? Because that's going down a false road. That's going down a road that isn't true at all, because he says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, I wish Paul would go into more detail right here. He goes into more detail about the resurrection in other places in his letters, but he doesn't do it right here in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. So I want to pick up on what Paul said right there. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Just to remind you, Paul said, Oh, by the wa- by the way, last of all, of all the apostles who were eyewitnesses, I also saw him. And Paul says he, of course, in Acts chapter 9, which I referenced earlier, Paul saw the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. So if, in fact, Christ, Christ has been raised from the dead, why, what is the evidence of that? Why is it true that Jesus really did come out of that grave alive? Well, the first thing we have, we have the evidence of the empty tomb, right? Historically, in fact, historians uh, even who are not believers that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that he came out of the tomb alive, even historians that don't believe all that still believe these historical facts, that Jesus did die by crucifixion under the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, that he really was put in a, in a tomb, and the tomb was sealed up, and the tomb is empty. Even the skeptics admit the tomb is empty. Now, what the real question is, what does, the, what does that mean? The fact that the tomb is empty, does that mean that Jesus is really alive or is there another explanation for the empty tomb, right? So this empty tomb, and had a large heavy stone rolled in front of the entrance. It couldn't be moved without a lot of noise and a lot of effort and a lot of human manpower. You may recall in the Gospels in like, Matthew and also in Luke, I believe, when the women were on the way to the tomb, and by the way, do you remember why they were going to the tomb early on that Sunday morning? They brought burial spices with them. And I just want to I, I just want to stress this point because one of the, one of the theories about Jesus uh, and his resurrection for those who don't believe in the resurrection is that all of Jesus' followers, they were so looking forward to him coming back alive from the, tomb, from the grave that they all just hallucinated and they all just fantasized and imagined that they saw Jesus alive from the dead. And, and some great psychiatrist has pointed this out. He says, hallucinations happen when people are really looking forward to something happening. And hallucinations happen usually to an individual, not to a whole group of people, and certainly not to a whole group of people at the same time. So the hallucination is one of the theories to explain the empty tomb if the resurrection never really happened. And so what that would say is these women, in this particular theory, that would mean these women were going to the tomb early on that Sunday morning, on Easter morning, and they were going anticipating the resurrection. We're going to go there and we're going to camp out in front of the empty tomb because our Lord said he was going to rise on the third day and it's Sunday morning and this is when it's going to happen. But that's not what we read in the gospel accounts. What we read is the women were going to the tomb with their burial spices because none of them were expecting Jesus to be coming alive out of the tomb. In fact, the question that they had, and that's why I put the part in about the large rock being rolled in front of the tomb, was one of their first questions is, who's gonna roll the stone away for us? How are we even going to get into the tomb without somebody to help us? That's how heavy and large that stone was. So uh, the Jewish authorities, they did something else to try to keep that tomb from becoming empty or to keep somebody from being uh, getting into the tomb. The Jewish authorities went to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, according to Matthew's Gospel, and they said, uh, Governor, um, there's a rumor that Jesus said, if you kill me three days later, I'm gonna rise again. And if Jesus, uh, who's just been killed, if, if the disciples steal his body away and then start proclaiming that he's really raised from the dead, the second rumor is gonna be worse than the first, so uh, Roman governor, Please give permission for us to get soldiers and put soldiers in front of the tomb to keep that very thing from happening. And Pontius Pilate says, go and do it. So soldiers were sent to guard the tomb to keep the tomb from being empty. The women were going to the tomb and saying, who's going to roll the stone away, bringing burial spices because nobody expected the resurrection. So so what would the explanation then be for the empty tomb? then the Jewish leaders later, after the apostles started preaching that they'd seen Jesus alive and that he really is the savior and the Messiah of the Jewish people, they, they started floating this alternative theory, why the tomb was empty. They said the soldiers fell asleep and while they were sleeping, and by the way, if they really did fall asleep and they were all sleeping and they say the disciples stole the body, if they were sleeping, how do they know who stole the body? I, I can't tell. You know, if you're asleep, how do you tell somebody comes in and does something? So, so there's a problem with that. But the, but the very reason the soldiers were sent in the first place was to keep the disciples from stealing the body. So that theory doesn't hardly make any sense, and it doesn't hold much water, and there's not a lot of people that really believe that anymore. Um, the second, So we have this evidence of the empty tomb, and we have to have an explanation. What is the best historical explanation for the empty tomb? Secondly, we have the evidence of Jesus' resurrection appearances. First of all, and in fact, Paul lay, lays out his list, and he says, and Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and he appeared to Peter. But in other Gospels, it says that he appeared first, To somebody who was in the garden who came to the tomb to to add the burial spices to his body, and this person was Mary. And you remember, Mary's a woman, right? And Mary, being a woman in the first century, they had no standing in court, they had no legal uh, jurisdiction, they couldn't give a witness testimony, and yet. The the gospel account is that the very first eyewitness of Jesus risen from the dead was a woman and her name was Mary. And then to Peter and the apostles, uh, the apostles were all in this locked room in the upper room. Why? Because they were so anticipating Jesus being raised from the dead and appearing to them. No, they were in the upper room and the room was locked because they were fearing that the Roman authorities were going to come or the Jewish authorities were going to come and arrest them as well for being followers of this false Messiah and they were scared and they were disillusioned and they were depressed and they thought, wow, this whole reason why we followed Jesus for the last three years in the kingdom of God and all the miracles we saw, we saw it's, it's just all down the drain. And then on Sunday evening, Jesus appears and he says, peace be with you. And then after that, Uh, After the upper room appearance of Jesus, uh, Paul says there were more than 500 witnesses at the same time. Most of them were still alive at the time of Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthians. So he says, hey, some of them have already died because 25 years have passed from uh, then to now. But I can tell you that hundreds of them are still alive and you can go ask them if they really saw Jesus alive. And then the next appearance was to James, who is Jesus's brother who other than the apostle Paul himself, this is one of the greatest signs that Jesus really did raise from the dead because uh, according to John and his gospel, James was a skeptic. None of his family believed in him. They arrived one time and they said, we need to, to, to talk to Jesus because we think he's out of his mind. His own family didn't even believe in Jesus until the resurrection. When Jesus appeared to James, and that same James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Not one of them were expecting to see Jesus alive again. They all thought he was dead and gone. Peter went back to his fishing business. So what I'm trying to say to you is that seeing Jesus alive again and claiming that they have eyewitness testimony here, that wasn't just a wish fulfillment for them. None of them were expecting to see him alive again. The simple explanation, of course, is that, you know, these people were just lying. But here's the trouble. If, if the apostles were all lying, that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. And we have the historical record that just about every one of these apostles, except for John, every one of these apostles gave their lives as martyrs saying that they had seen Jesus alive and that he was risen from the dead, and he really is the son of God and the savior of the world, and you can really have eternal life if you'll trust in him. None of them ever recanted from that testimony, even being put to the point of death. None of them. And and by the way, they weren't all together when they were being put to death, because I know the idea. The idea is this group mentality. Hey, guys, we know we got a lie here, but... it. The, our lives are over anyway, so let's just go to the grave, uh, sticking with this lie. And you know that people sometimes will die for a lie. Here we are, today's September 9th. I was just thinking about this this morning. Today's September 9th. Two days from now is the anniversary of 9 11, of September 11, when these martyrs, when these Muslim fanatics, jihadists, would, would uh, take over airplanes and run them into buildings and kill a bunch of people, killing themselves, thinking they were dying for something greater than themselves, believing something to be true that really ends up being a lie. But the difference is that these people, these these so-called pilots that, that flew the planes into buildings, they died believing something, but they didn't know it was true or not. The apostles would have known that this gospel message that they were proclaiming, they would have known whether it was true or a lie. And if it really was a lie and they knew it was a lie, one of the 12 would have said, you know what? This isn't worth dying for. The gig's up. We made the whole story up. Sorry, guys. Can I go home now? You know? And, and, he would, and one of them would have recanted, but none of them recanted. And that's why that eyewitness testimony is so important. Jesus resurrected appearances to people who said, I saw him and I'm willing to give my life for it because it really did happen. Number three, the third reason why we can believe that Jesus' resurrection is true is we have the evidence of the survival and the flourishing of the early church. Where did the church begin? What city did it begin in? Jerusalem. Where did these events take place? Jerusalem. Where was the tomb where Jesus was supposedly buried? In Jerusalem. Uh, How many of the Jewish authorities wanted to stamp out this Christian faith and put it back in the ground where it belonged? All of them. So how did the church survive? How did it thrive in the middle of this persecution when everybody just wanted to to stamp it out and and make it null and void? The point is, uh, you know, in the very place where these events happened, the, the empty tomb happened, people uh, who were there in Jerusalem, the opponents of, of the resurrection, the enemies of the Christian faith, they could have gone to the tomb and produced Jesus' body, or they could have had their guards give testimonies by saying that the disciples came and overpowered them, stole the body of Jesus. And yet the church flourished and grew by preaching the good news of Jesus' resurrection right there in the city that tried to shut him down. And in the epicenter of the Jewish culture, these Christ followers had the audacity even to change the day of worship. For how many hundreds of years had the day of worship, the sacred day in the Jewish calendar been Saturday, the Sabbath, and yet these this sect of the Jewish religion who are now following this person they believe to be Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. They have the audacity to change the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday, and they survived, and it flourished, and they're now they're calling it the Lord's Day because it was the anniversary of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, and that's what we still celebrate today. How could they possibly survive unless what they were preaching really happened? Why is the gospel message true? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Why is the Christian faith legitimate? Because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Why did the early church survive in Jerusalem in an extremely hostile environment? Because Jesus really was resurrected. Why is your faith anchored on something that is solid and true? Because Jesus Christ Has been raised from the dead. Paul goes on and he talks about the comparison of a one man who was created by God and then the man who came from heaven, Jesus Christ. The first man, Adam, and the last, and the second man, or the second Adam, or the heavenly man, he talks about the early man, or the, excuse me, he talks about the earthly man being Adam, and the heavenly man being Jesus. And Paul does this comparison, and he says, just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, now that we're human beings, and Adam disobeyed God and sinned, and as a result, sin came into the world, and death came as a result of sin, and now everybody's scared to death of death all because of Adam's disobedience, so now because, you know, and people say this, well, why should we all have to die just because Adam was disobedient to God? And my counter to that is, so why do we all get eternal life just because one man, Jesus, was obedient to God and he was resurrected from the dead? Why do we all get in on his his coattails if none of us actually earned it or merited heaven ourselves, you know? So think about that. Just as in Adam all dies, so in Adam, so in Christ all will be given new life, in verse 22. And uh, it go, Paul goes on, why should we ourselves risk our lives hour by hour? What value is there in fighting wild beasts, those people of Ephesus, if there is no resurrection from the dead? If there's no resurrection, Paul quotes from Isaiah, a prophet in the Old Testament. He says, if there's no resurrection, he just says, let's let's feast and drink because tomorrow we die. What does it matter? Paul's saying, if you believe that Jesus... Oh, let let me finish this one verse here. So Paul says then, he says, don't be fooled by those who say such things, those who deny the resurrection. Don't be fooled or be led astray by these people because... As the scripture says, bad company corrupts good character. I remember being a youth pastor, and that was one of my favorite verses. I said, you know, you choose your friends, and you choose your future. Your friends will choose your future. Bad company corrupts good character. And I never understood it until I read it in context now in 1 Corinthians. Paul's saying, if you hang around skeptics all the time, if you hang around unbelievers all the time, if you let people who are trying to deny the truth of the resurrection, deny the Christian faith, if you are around those people all the time listening to it uh, like marinating in their unbelief, their bad character, their bad company will corrupt your character of faith. So be careful of who you hang around with all the time because they may lead you astray in your faith, right? So we had the first two questions. First question is, what is the gospel? The second question is, why is it true? And now we come to the third question. What do we have to look forward to? Is there a better world coming? I mean, so what? Jesus has been raised from the dead. That's awesome for him. What does that do for me? What does that do for you? Someone will ask this question How will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? Let's just keep going in the scripture. Next one jumps ahead. How is having a resurrected body? So, Paul's talking about the resurrection. He's saying Jesus, when he was resurrected, he had a brand new resurrection body that wasn't going to get sick or decay or run out. The only thing in Jesus' body that's going to be different from your and my body is he's going to have scars in his hands and his feet, and he's going to have a scar on the wound on his side to remind us of what he did on our behalf. When we we are raised from the dead and we get a resurrected body, how is that body going to be different from the body that you and I have right now? Because if anybody is aging, and we all are, by the way, is anybody in here over the age of 25? Some of you are. Yeah. If, if you are, I have bad news and good news, right? Bad news is your body is now decaying and going back to dust. There's the bad news. The good news is if you're a believer in Christ, you got a great super Iron Man resurrected body that's coming in the future for you. And you get to trade in the old for the new. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual body. There's, a, there's a one final verse that I want to quote, and Paul gives us this amazing description of the transformation and how it's going to take place, and it begins in verse 51. If we can get there, there it is. Thank you. It says, but let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die but we will all be transformed. Now, Paul's talking about the second coming of Christ. And he says, if you are alive here on this earth, when the Lord Jesus comes again, this is what's gonna happen to you. We will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. And that's when Paul does that great quote. And he says, he, he, he goes into death, death and he just starts mocking death. And he says, hey, death, where's your victory? Hey, death, where's your sting? It used to be hovering over all of humanity and the fear of death and what happens when we die and it's just despair because there's, there's no hope for what happens after the grave. But because of Jesus, we can have this, this great hope that not only was he raised from the dead, but as we trust in him, we're gonna be raised from the dead too and God's gonna give us a brand new resurrected body just like the body that Jesus has. And we have this great hope and those who have this hope are the ones that can stand firm in this world today, knowing that we have a better world coming, knowing that we have a great hope uh, to be in heaven with the Lord forever. So we find victory, and Paul says this, how we thank God, how we thank God who gives us victory over sin and death through Jesus Christ our Lord. God is gonna give us resurrected bodies. God is gonna make a brand new heavens and earth and we who are in Christ, <laughs> I put it, I don't know why I put Iron Man, but that's just what came to mind. We're gonna have these Iron Man bodies that can run into stuff and yet don't, and don't get injured. And, and you can have that and your name doesn't have to even be Tony. <laughs> so here's, here's what we're supposed to do. What do you want us to do with this message? How do we take it home? How do we live this out? What kind of hope? First of all, I hope, that I hope I pray that this message gives you hope as it gives me hope. This, the grave is not the end of the story. Death is not going to get the final say. In fact, you go to the end of the book, you know, you want to read the last chapter? You know, some of you say, I want to know how it all ends. Well, go ahead and read Revelation 20 and 21 and 22 because in Revelation 20, it says God is going to take the last two enemies of man, death and Hades. And he's going to take that. He's going to take death and he's going to throw that into the lake of fire. And then we're going to get a new heavens and a new earth to be with the Lord forever. What an amazing hope. So what should you do as a result of this message? If you haven't already put your trust in Jesus, I hope you realize by now that he is worthy of your trust. He gave his life for you. He died for you. And he says, I want you to live for me. Put your faith and trust in Jesus, that he is who he says he is, and that he will do what he says he will do based on his own resurrection. Number two, besides putting your faith in Jesus, be confident. Confident. You know, that word means confide, means full of faith, full of faith, with faith. What you believe is true. It's not just pie in the sky. It's not just, I hope so, I hope so, I hope so. It's not just snow white, you know, in the forest. I'm wishing, I'm wishing, you know, for something to happen. You know, this is based on historical evidence and facts. What you believe is true. And then number three, this is a message that's worth sharing. Because Jesus gave his life for us. And he says, it's not just for you, it's for everybody. Everybody. Everybody's welcome in the kingdom of God. Let him who is thirsty come and drink. So, we want everybody to have this message, and faith comes by hearing. And that means that somebody else's faith could come by hearing what you have to share with them. Share this good news message with others, they need to know it. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for this letter of 1 Corinthians to show us how to live right, to show us how to live in unity and in order and with hope and using all the gifts that you've given us in this church to build it up as each part, as each one of us does our work. Thank you for showing us how to have a healthy, flourishing congregation, this gathering of followers of Jesus who are going to build each other up and help lead others into a growing relationship with our our creator. Lord, we love you. We love your resurrection. We trust in you. And Lord, we put our hope in you because it's not based on blind faith. It's based upon what you actually did for us. Help us to go and share that great message with everyone we meet. In Jesus' name, amen.